Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm so excited to be able to share this second of a two-part talk with my dear friend Maureen Deering Davis of Makara Yoga Shala, where we cover so much about yoga and life coaching. And I think the days of my knee being a running theme are coming to a close. It is feeling a lot better. The great thing is, of course, it came up during our talk because I can't do yoga right now. I can't get into a lot of those poses because of the limitations on my range of motion. But in this episode, Maureen's going to describe how your hip mobility and ankle mobility affect the knee. So it's really a great episode for athletes or anybody who sits for a long time. So it's got uh, some background on that. We are also going to cover breath work, life coaching, and a lot more. Please note that nothing that we say in this episode is to be taken as medical advice or to be used in place of it. It's a great episode, so please grab a cuppa and join Maureen Deering Davis and I in this episode. I'm six or seven weeks out from surgery now and I'm able to bend my knee but I can't get into a kneeling position like if I was to try to do any yoga you know like I'm really realizing how impactful that can be and Uh it becomes much more enormous than the whole sum of who I am right we learn a lot about ourselves when we get injured. What you would you have done? I tore my meniscus oh, okay. just walking up steps. I've always been really super active and I do all this stuff and I get injured walking upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so dumb. You're right. You do learn a lot from being injured because you have to think about your limitations. Well, and also too, you know, there's so many components to healing. The knee we call in yoga therapy is the middle child of the ankle and the hip. So if you've got restrictions in the ankle or if you had any ankle injuries or if you sit a lot and you've got tight hip flexors like psoas muscles, the knee is kind of the fulcrum of the energy between the hips and the ankles. And so if they're lacking mobility and restricted, then the knee is going to try to compensate. And, you know, the meniscus is that that cushion just like the disc is to the spine. So over time, if it's compensating and not tracking well, it just wears out, especially for the type of things that you're doing. And so going forward, 
you know, so that you don't continue to injure it because you need that little bit that's there. You need to look at the nature of your hips and your ankles, but also soft tissue actually takes longer than breaks and fusion type things to have a complete healing. Um, mm -hmm. But then the other thing too is like, because you're an active person. So when you take somebody who's really active like you, and then now you have to adapt and become inactive, it can be really kind of depressing. It can cause a lot of anxiety. Um, like you said, there's a lot of adjustments and you, you take for granted how much we just get up and go until you can't just get up and go. Right. I agree. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to be pragmatic about it and just reminding myself, be patient. And I feel like I'm almost there. Yeah. So I'm not as um, anxious about it as I was for a while there. It's been almost a full year. So I'm hoping that by the time that I hit the full 12 months of not moving around, right. I will be back and it'll be a, a new year for me, you know? Right. And usually, like every time I've had back surgery, there's always a period of pain and injury leading up to it. And then you do all the therapies. And when those fail, or they're not working to correct the issue, then you do the surgery. And then after the surgery, you have all this downtime. And especially with my lower back, that was a good two years of inactivity. And here I was a competitive tennis player. That was my outlet for stress. And then going through the rehab of having two artificial discs put in, that was three months of pretty much being like flat. And right. you just sitting up in that bed, especially with two kids and they had to be certain places and I'd be able to drive, but you know, pretty much just Boy, I'd sit there and did a lot of deep introspective work. And I came out of that like a new person, you know, like you're saying you're trying to be patient. It's just time and it's coming. But in the meantime, I used to think, what did I learn about myself during this time? What did I miss the most? How could I improve upon that? What did I take for granted? And then how would I show up and be present, you know, and that's six months after that surgery, I started my yoga teacher training and <laughs> it was such a mess just from being one a tennis player and lifting weights my whole life so I was tight and restricted because I was a weightlifter you know uh, hardcore jock and then now yoga is asking me to just be elongated and flexible which I lacked all of that mm -hmm. and as it was so hard I noticed that things that were hard for me I didn't want to do throughout my life wow really oh yeah throughout my life like so when I started doing yoga again because I did it periodically throughout 1999 and 2000 and then it's a little bit in 2001 and then everything came to a halt. So when I was getting ready to rehab, the doctors were like, well, we're not going to send you to PT. Like you can just do your yoga stretches and stuff and that will pretty much help you. So I did that. And then I was going through a divorce. So I got separated. My mom was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer. I was losing custody of my kids 50% of the time. And I walked into a yoga studio. I hated yoga prior to that, mind you. Oh my gosh. Those are four big traumas you going through your life. I know. You, that's what, like enormous, enormous at the same time. Yes. 
And prior to that, I didn't like yoga per se, because it was too slow for me. You know, I was like, a am a team sports kind of girl. So I tried it again. And I walked into the studio and something was different. I wanted to do it to work on myself and to understand it a little deeper. And then I decided a month later, I would do the yoga teacher training because I wanted to understand what yoga was all about. So when I first started back, when she would tell us to do certain postures, like I could hear my mind in the poses going, Oh my God, I hate this. This is so hard for me. I'm such a mess. Just all this mind chatter. And I was like, wow, I avoid things that are difficult for me. Again, remember we talked about the discipline of it. Yeah, I just find that so fascinating because being an athlete, being a good tennis player requires focus, which is difficult in and of itself. I mean, it, it requires a particular type of mindfulness and a particular type of dedication that is hard. I mean, those are both difficult things to do. And then to feel like you avoid things that are hard. Well, things that didn't come easy to me. So let me rephrase mm. that because in playing tennis, I'm fast, I'm quick, I have a lot of agility. And my ADHD actually at times was very beneficial to me. You know, I'm now taking the step back, I would have been an even better tennis player if I were doing yoga. So for instance, having ADHD, once I got in a zone, I had hyper focus. So I was really good at the net because I, I'm all in, like, right? So nothing's distracting me. I'm there. And I got such a high from playing sports and just from the game and the physical movement. And the physical movement was easy for me. So I didn't struggle with that. But then what would happen is as the tension would build mentally in terms of like points, like match point or being down a set or knowing that I had to execute the next two shots, like I couldn't make a mistake, then it became a mind mess game because then I would become impulsive. My timing would be off. I would fall out of the zone. Now looking back, I can see that's what happened to me at different times mm -hmm. in matches, you know. You get in your head too yeah. much rather than in the game. Yeah. And then I couldn't follow through because I was yeah. tentative, you know, and then you'd get frustrated with yourself and try to shake it off. So tennis was easy for me, but yoga was hard for me because I wasn't strong enough or flexible enough for what the poses required from me because my body had been through so much trauma and I just didn't have the flexibility or the agility. And in sports my whole life, whether it be softball, whether it was basketball. I was good at it. Why short explosive movements? But now you're asking me to do things that require different movement patterns and they were boring. You know what I mean? It wasn't, mm -hmm, it wasn't mm -hmm. engaging. It was just me. And so that's why I didn't like it at first because it was really slow and difficult. But for some reason, when I walked through that door that second time, I felt like I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And as I continued and things started opening up and my body started to shift. And I felt like the most amazing energy that I'd ever felt in my whole life. I, I was like, wow, this is amazing. 
and then it just became more of a self-discovery and just felt good to be in my body in ways that I could with my breathing and with my awareness, get into spots that I'd never been able to journey into. So, mm-hmm. and it got me out of my head because I have a busy mind. And was that right away or did it take you some time to practice that to get there? Um, it's always been an evolving journey, but I would say then because I was doing a teacher training, I was doing yoga every single day. And I think when I practiced every day, I was making milestones in poses that probably if you're only practicing twice a week, you wouldn't necessarily have, but it was a dedication. I did it every morning and actually I was turned on by it because to be honest with you, I was free of a body that was always full of pain. And so when I was doing yoga, I wasn't in a pain body. I was in my ethereal real spiritual body. And that to me was finally for the first time, like in my life, I was able to transcend those blockages that I felt were always holding me in. And I was able to expand out and expand in my consciousness without drugs. Mm -hmm. It was a natural high of sorts. And then the more I did it, the more then I would sustain that calm and was an energized calm. And there were times that I practiced where there were moments where everything in that moment was so sweet it was almost like nectar like the bliss and the joy and the love that I would feel in certain moments where it was just palatable it was like oh my gosh like life is just amazing right now meanwhile I'm getting divorced meanwhile I'm fighting for custody of my kids meanwhile my mom is dying and my life is turning upside down but again like I told you before with my recent life struggles of my dad's passing my mat was just my home. It was my sanctuary. It's where everything made sense. And then the real world didn't, you know, so it was it was my therapy, to be honest with you. Wow. Wow. And for people who have never experienced that getting into their spiritual selves, I don't do yoga enough to feel that I've ever actually been there. How do you reach that point? Is that through the exercises? Is it through the breathing? I actually have a hard time synchronizing my breathing to the movements. Mm -hmm. Most people do. So like my motto is, is if you don't learn first how to breathe properly, you're missing the whole point of yoga. So Mm -hmm. if I work with somebody one on one, the first thing I do is assess their breathing. And 99% of the population doesn't know how to breathe properly. So I teach them the first breathing techniques. And then I break it down and I have them start doing gentle movements with their arms to try to sync the breath with the movement. And then they go home and have homework and they need to practice that. And I give them maybe three or four asanas to work on every day. I tell everybody up front, if you're not going to do the homework, you're wasting your money and you're wasting your time because you'll progress if you do the work. It's imperative that you get this basic fundamental down. Otherwise, you're just moving and you're not going to get the real essence. And in a class, I spend a lot of time talking incessantly about the breathing, where you should be, and linking it. So every class starts that way so that they get it. 
So yeah, that's probably why you haven't felt that because unless a teacher really is dedicated to teaching that you're just moving through your body and just like you would be anything else. Oh, yeah. And catching like I feel actual movement snags (laughs) as I'm moving because some some of those movements just seem so constrictive and then I stop breathing or they're moving so fast through the asanas that I really just want to go slow down I can't catch up yes yes and that's the remember we talked about the vinyasa and it's so unfortunate that they look at it in this fast-paced environment because again it's how can this become a meditation and relaxing and getting out of your head if one you can't understand the direction you're given two you're constantly having to look at the teacher I give so much instruction I don't want you to look at me you shouldn't have to ever look at me because I'm giving you so much instruction that you should be able to just be on your mat and hear me and move. Because when you have to constantly look at somebody, it breaks your meditative stride. Some people will look just to make sure they're in the right spot, but but everybody's a different kind of learner. Like people are auditory, meaning they only have to hear. Some people are kinesthetic, meaning they need to see it and move through it to understand it and visual. But some people are all three. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, in private work is I sort of talk people through certain movements to see what kind of learner they are. Because then if they come into a therapeutic class of mine, usually they always had to have like a assessment because then they're coming into a group that's already established and say somebody comes in and they have uh, diagnosed low back issues. Well, I want to make sure they can come to the class safely. I want to make sure that I know what kind of a student they are and how they learn so that they can seamlessly move into the class without holding anybody back, but also so that they can get the benefit. But now with where I am, everybody's been doing yoga for such a long time that they're pretty well versed. But the teacher prior to me wasn't as big on alignment. So a lot of them were not aligned in the postures properly. So we've been breaking things down and getting them in the right alignment. And now they're able to practice deeper because now they're starting to see the subtle nuances of things. But the breath is everything. If you're holding your breath, you are going to feel constricted in a pose. You're not going to be able to move into a twist if you're holding your breath. Right. And I think that's always my concern with a lot of yoga classes or just really any exercise class. You know, I think I mentioned that I'm certified as a fitness nutrition coach. Right. And I did a lot of the strength training, just like you did. That was like Uh huge for years. And I know if you are not practicing proper form, regardless of what the exercise is, you could injure yourself. Right. Pull a muscle, you know, your back just doesn't feel right, whatever. Um, And so you have to be really careful with that. So those are always my concerns is like, I'm not breathing. And am I holding this pose right? Am I doing this right? right? And then a lot of times I feel like in my mind that my foot is where it's supposed to be. And my back is turned and it's straight and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then I have somebody adjust me and it just feels like they're adjusting me into like some crazy position that my body will not turn into. Right. Um, So we've learned along the way in yoga, especially in more of a therapeutic approach to yoga, 
And I'm constantly studying and doing continuing education. I follow a couple of really good chiros that are into very dynamic neurobiology training. And the thing about the body is that the nervous system needs to feel safe when it's doing movement. Otherwise, it goes into fight or flight. So they've sort of reinforced this. And we've sort of figured it out in yoga therapeutics that you have to meet the person kind of where they're at and then let them feel safe, give them modifications, right? Because that's the other thing about yoga that's so beautiful is there's tons of modifications, tons. And if people are given modifications and they then can feel settled, then they can eventually move into better alignment. But hey, guess what? You may never have a perfect triangle. It doesn't matter. As long as you're breathing, as long as your spine is in the right alignment, then you're going to get the benefits of the pose. Mm -hmm. But um, too many teachers are just flying through the class and not really taking into consideration the actual person. And some people genetically are just made different. They may never get into a seated cross-leg position because their hips just won't allow it. And guess what? That's okay. Right. That's okay. Yeah, you know? I can see that. Yeah. Um, as far as practice goes, how long do you suggest that people practice? Uh, clearly every day, but are we looking at 20 minutes, 30 minutes, in addition to, say, somebody who is either running or going to the gym or both, and then they're adding yoga? Um, I think that that tends to be one of the hangups, too. It's like, how much extra time am I going to have to be spending on something? And I know that it's more of a lifestyle. I, we talked about it earlier, but um, how to really incorporate it and make it a foundational support to your well-being on a daily basis rather than just another exercise module that you're throwing right. in each day. Right. Uh, well, first of all, as I said, like to move physically with yoga, I would say if you spend between 15 and 20 minutes in the morning doing a breathing technique and then doing some gentle uh, joint mobility stuff just to get your body sort of prepped for the day. Um, there's a whole joint mobility thing where you can just do some simple movements to the shoulders, the neck, the big joints of the body, the hips, and just do a little bit of maybe connecting with breathing, like a flow posture of just, you know, standing and doing a forward fold and coming up, like just to get things synchronized. Like if you spend 15 or 20 minutes doing that in the morning to wake your body up and into good movement, then that's great. And then at night, you could spend 15 minutes just before bed doing, again, some breathing techniques that slow and calm the nervous system down um, and doing some gentle stretching, like maybe some twists or, you know, maybe doing hamstring stretches or something that will calm your body down for evening sleep and sort of as a prep. Then you could do it that way. People sometimes, if they have a really busy life, they'll say, okay, Maureen, make a program for me. Like, I've only got 
got 20 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night and I'll hit the high points, you know, so you hit your, you hit your target areas, you know, and it just depends for each person. Like if you have back issues and like, say maybe in the morning you want to, might want to do some cobras to strengthen your back. And then maybe at night you want to do some extended child pose to stretch out or the twist to support your back. Then you would do that. If it's shoulder issues, you would do something else. So, or if it's just for overall well-being, if you're a runner, you want to maybe stretch your hamstrings and hips out. If you're a tennis player, maybe you want to do something with the hips, golf, same thing. Mm -hmm. So what are your target areas that you want to hit? And then add your yoga to enhance your things that you really love to do, you know, but at night, just definitely something that's slower paced, more focusing on lengthening your exhalation, because that creates a, a sympathetic uh, neurological response on calming the body down and getting you prepared to sleep, emptying your mind, you know, unwinding, really. So uh, just for the people who are listening, so a great way, a great breathing technique to do for any kind of anxiety or stress is to inhale for a count of four, hold for one count, and then do a slow exhalation for a count of seven or eight. So you double the ratio. So if you inhale for four, then you double the exhalation to eight. If once you get really good at breathing, then you could inhale for six, you could exhale for 12 because it's in the exhalation that you get that relaxation response into the nervous system. Yes. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that breathing technique because I heard a similar one to that just recently, which is inhaling for four, Uh holding for seven, Mm -hmm. and then exhaling for eight. Yes, you can do that also. But a lot of people in the beginning have trouble holding for seven because when they start to hold their breath, they panic because then the body feels like, oh, I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And then you get anxious trying to hold the breath. The other thing you could do is like a squared breathing pattern, which is like inhaling for four, starting out baby steps, inhaling for four, hold the breath for two, exhale for four, hold out for two. And then if you get that pretty fluidly, then you could go to six, three, six, three. Then you could go to inhale for eight, hold for four, exhale for eight, and then hold for four, hold it out for four. And that becomes very easy. Actually holding the breath makes you overcome your fear of death because when you can't breathe, the body will go into a neurological response of like, you know, panic. But, But once you work through that panic and realize that you're fine and you need to relax in those moments, then you can attain the four, seven, eight. That is another ratio that is very beneficial. Yeah. When I'm holding my breath, I just kind of feel like I'm in between beats. Yes. It's kind of a kind of a a floaty, relaxing place for me to be in. I mean, I still know that I need to exhale. And you know, I start to feel that increasing tightness in my chest that says you got to let this breath out as I get close to that seven or eight count. Um, But I do feel like it's a place in between beats where I'm just there, nothing else around the world is touching me. So I, I do like doing that either, you know, like you said, the box breathing or 
having those long moments where I'm breathing in for a count and holding it for a count and releasing yeah. it for a count. And it is very relaxing. And, and I guess that's a good place to start to really get into meditation too, because I know yes. that that's all part of it as well. Yes. And you, when you just touched on when you're in the pause between breaths, you're in a space of nothingness. Mm-hmm. But in nothingness, you're in somethingness because it's still an act of doing. It's just that you're not actively doing. You're more in that state of observance, you know, and in pure experience. Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I just thought of when I was younger, it's been a while, but I mean, it still happens occasionally. I'll have an anxiety attack and it feels like my lungs are not opening up enough for all the air that I need. And I learned pretty early on to just go somewhere where it's quiet and breathe in a pattern similar to what we were talking about. And you know, it might take 10 minutes, but it's always put me back in a place where, okay, I'm grounded and I can move forward again. Yes. Yes. That's awesome that you learned how to do that at a young age. Yeah. And it's, it's very helpful just regulating your breath. It's the same thing when you're running. I've talked to people who don't know how to regulate their breath when they run, especially when I was working as a fitness coach. Mm-hmm. And I would explain to them, you just have to think about your breathing while you're running it. Your breath doesn't have to go with each step. You just need to count in a count of four, out for a count of four. And that regulates your breathing, which allows you to have more energy, stay more focused and be able to run further and enjoy it more because your lungs aren't burning. And, right. you know, when you get... <laughs> <laughs> and when you get to the end, you're not panting and feeling like, you know, you're going to pass out. Right. So right. You're right. I think a lot of people don't know how to breathe. Breathing is so important because that's where all of the oxygenation takes place right. and the, you know, the relaxation, right? It controls all of the, like the cortisol hormones, yes. which is the stress hormone and all of that sort of Blood stuff. Blood pressure. Yeah. So I like to get, I think visuals are helpful with people because, well, if you ever watch a baby, a baby knows how to breathe, right? But again, we're talking mm-hmm. about that swatic being, that pure being, you know, delivered from the divine is like coming in knowing exactly what to do. But through life and through stress, we hold our breath when we're under stress. So I was a chronic person who held her breath, like my tennis coach would always tell me, Maureen, you have to exhale on the exertion when you're hitting your forehand. And I never realized it until I started playing tennis as an adult, like, oh my gosh, I'm not breathing. And I can't really get a good stroke because there's no energy behind me. I'm just, I'm tight and I'm, I'm pushing the ball, right? I'm not flowing through the ball. But so life experiences, trauma, whatever has influenced us and, and just stress in general. I mean, you get in the car, you hold your breath. So I like to tell people practice your breathing in the car. But there's a visual that I have. It's like, think of your lungs as like a balloon. And so when you breathe in, you want to slowly fill the balloon with air. Okay, not breathe fast, but slowly breathe it. Then 
when you get to the top of the breath, I want you to think about the lungs being the balloon where you're slowly letting the air out. Because if you let the air out too quickly of a balloon, it's going to fly away. Right. And so people have to realize like when they take a nice breath in, your diaphragm moves away from your chest, which allows your lungs to expand. That's what causes your belly to lift. There's no air in your belly. Mm -hmm. the, the diaphragm has moved down to your pelvis. So then the lungs are filling up. And as your lungs fill up, your rib cage floats up and out, and then the intercostal muscles lengthen and expand. So then you have that whole expansion. And then as you slowly let the air out, the diaphragm moves back up, it helps to push the air out of your lungs, and then your rib cage floats back into position and your intercostal muscles relax. Most people will just get the belly to lift and then there's no movement in the chest mm -hmm. because they've done short, shallow breathing forever. So now their body has adapted to that pattern. And so I like to tell people in yoga, we're just changing bad habits for good habits. We're going back to what is innate in you, but you forgot. And then once you get back to it, you don't unforget it because you change that neurological pattern in your body. And so then you tap into it whenever you need it. Like you can't do three part breathing all day long. But for instance, when I was working in a clinic and I saw people hour to hour, like an urgent care kind of thing. In between patients, I would immediately go into that, we call it the Ujjaya breath, that three part slow diaphragmatic breath. And that would refocus me, that would help me to let go of all of what I did with that person, their stuff, their energy, reset, calm myself down, and then be good to go again. And it just happened automatic, because I would do it every single time. And I knew I knew how to tap into it. Same thing, like if you go for a medical procedure or whatever, I immediately go into that breathing and people are like, what is that noise? And they're like, that's her breathing. And they're like, wow, like you sound like dark Vader, you know? And I'm like, it just happens. <laughs> Darth Vader. <laughs> I know. I, it's seriously. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because what did you call it? A, you, what Ujjaya. Did you, Ujjaya. Ujjaya breath. That Ujjaya breath. It's such a handy tool for times when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling down and depressed. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there's clinical levels of depression, but we all go through blues, right? Heartbreaks, things like what you were just talking about, your father's death, and you know, mm -hmm. having to deal with your mother and the divorce and breakups and job losses and car accidents. I mean, there's there's things that just happen all the time in life that really impact us in pretty profound ways and having that in your arsenal to just kind of pull out and go, okay, I just need to get through this moment. So I'm going to do this breathing and ground myself again so that I can move forward. It's like a great mental health tool. Totally. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of young women in their 20s who've had a lot of panic attacks or OCD through the mindful coaching. Because when you do the Ujjayi breathing, you really want to try to make that sound, that ha sound, the Darth Vader sound. And when you let your tongue rest 
to the roof of your mouth or behind your top teeth that creates a little bit of a lock in the back of the throat that allows you to control the flow of air coming in and out through the nostrils. So that's what creates that sound. It's like kind of like a defogging a mirror. It's like a ha sound. The reason that you do that sound is because your mind will focus on that sound. Your mind can't do two things at once, even though it thinks it can. Right. It can't. It can't. And so that's the quickest way to get out of your head. And so I tell people too, like those of us who wake up at, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning, like clockwork, instead of letting your mind get busy, go back and take some of those Ujaya breaths. Do 10 of them. I guarantee by the 15th, you're back to sleep because you're not thinking, you didn't engage in your monkey mind. You're calming yourself down. You can feel Mm -hmm. your body just coming down. And then next thing you know, you're back to sleep. It's a great tool to have. Like it's the best tool. That is such a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was listening to this uh, neuroscientist and she said humming. She said, if you just hum when you wake up. There's a, a breathing technique that it's called bumblebee breath. Well, you close your eyes, actually put your palms over your eyes and then put your thumbs in your ears and then you take a deep breath and then you keep your mouth closed and you just go, and the vibration one is really good for your oh yeah i feel that yeah for your thyroid but it also stimulates a lot of the cervical lymph nodes and anybody who has neck issues but just the humming is a is a very melodic kind of soothing vibration of sound that you don't need to put your fingers in your ears. You can just, you know, and just let the vibration of the breath just calm you down. I mean, you hear babies making sound, you know, they're rocking and it's a soothing technique. Right, right. You know? Huh, interesting. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to try that next time I wake up in the middle of the night. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you said you were mentioning working with people who have high anxiety, OCD, that sort of thing. So I know you're a life coach. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that a life coach helps people? Um, Well, my life coaching is a blend of similar to my teacher. It's a therapy. I take all my yoga philosophy and my mindfulness techniques and I have people like one, look at their issues. Let's talk about them. And then let me give you an example. Um, So I had a young girl who had really bad panic attacks and really bad OCD. And she wanted to do yoga. And unfortunately, she didn't have very good body awareness. So we had to start somewhere. So we started with the life coaching. So we started talking about when does she get panic attacks? And the panic attacks were very much connected to the OCD because there was a lot of anxiety behind it. And that would bring on the panic attacks. So she was seeing a regular therapist. And as we kind of dove deeper into that, the therapist had her focusing on all the negative things about herself, you know, and writing it down and so on and so forth. And I started shifting her awareness to focusing on all the positive things about herself. And when we started doing that, she started to feel a little bit more empowered and her self-esteem came back. 
So I more empowered her, you know, to take charge of her life and to break down all these things that she felt inadequate about and give her you know, the opposite of what she felt. So I had her focus on all her good qualities. We uncovered in her as a mindful coach to life coach, mindful coach. And so once she sort of understood that and teaching her how to draw good boundaries, like we broke it down week by week into like how a week went, where did she get stuck? I mean, she had stopped driving because she was so incapacitated and she didn't want to do medication. Mm -hmm. She started doing the yoga with me and she really liked it. So we started to get into the movement part of it, which really helped her. And she ended up getting a job and we started to break down those mental patterns of self-sabotage and started empowering her, like giving her communication skills, you know, instead of shutting down, helping her understand where some of her issues came from. Yeah, learn to how to self-advocate, right? Yes. I kind of think that as women, we have a lot of trouble accepting agency for ourselves and really accepting who we are and then delving into that curiosity in an open manner about why we reacted a certain way to something. And I'm not really sure why I kind of find that more in females than I do in males, especially because when I was a coach, you know, anytime that you're, you're a coach, you kind of are almost a, not a therapist, but a counselor. Very similar. Yeah, that's really wonderful that you're able to coach somebody through your life coaching to become much more resilient and find that freedom of independence, especially when it hasn't been there all of their lives. Well, I just want to equip them and empower them. My coaching empowers people. I've worked with quite a few women who have gone through divorces and they now have to navigate this new way of life or a lot of people who have retired and they don't or never thought about what their next step was, you know, or people with chronic pain, you know, I get all the challenging cases, but it's good because I love to empower people to one, we have to work through the past, but we can't cling to the past and help them create a narrative that is supporting all of their attributes, give them the tools and just more of like, looking at their mind and looking at the way that they are talking to themselves and challenging them in those moments to not stay in that old paradigm of thinking, but reminding them that they are powerful. And as females, I think when we're powerful or when we try to own our power, we're afraid that we might come off as being bitchy or selfish or any of those things. And that's not true. I mean, I think women shrink instead of expanding because female, I mean, females are hard on other females, you know, unfortunately, (laughs) you know, and, and if you're coming from a loving place, your power can only be used for good. Right. And only you know whether you're coming from a good place. 
Um, but it's more about empowering them, taking their positive qualities, strengthening those, and then having them go out and implementing them one at a time, drawing really good boundaries and doing things that promote self-care, but also self-love, which is something that's really hard. And it's a daily practice, mm -hmm. you know, to love thyself is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I spend a lot of time being, you know, probably a good 15, 20 minutes every day, just kind of challenging some of my personal beliefs about myself, and really more to understand why I am the way I am. And it's mm -hmm. kind of liberating, you know, where I think I'm a pretty cool person. <laughs> yeah. And, Hello. <laughs> and in so doing, it also helps me understand and be much more forgiving of others. Yes. Because I see all so much more similar to one another than we really believe that we are. Yes. And the more I understand myself, the more... I begin to understand other people. It doesn't mean that, you know, some people I'm never going to be friends with. And you know, that's all there is to it. And there's lots of people out there who are never going to be friends with me. There's a saying in Spanish that my mom would always say, we're not all gold coin for everybody uh, to love us. And I agree with that. And I'm okay with that. I think that the world needs that. There's, there's so many different personalities out there, despite how similar we are to one another. And and people are going to gravitate towards those people that are going to support them the most or, you know, kind of um, provide more validation for their personality type. And I think that's really wonderful. But I do find that in understanding the way that I respond to life in general, it helps me understand other people's responses. And like I said, be much more forgiving or at least accepting of that. Well, yes. And we are all similar in the fact that we have, you know, we're human beings and we have this body, but then we come from all different cultural backgrounds and everybody is entitled to be who they want to be. And we're not going to energetically gel with everyone. And that's okay. We're not supposed to, right. you know, the people who are like-minded are going to hang out. And I think we talked about it before. It's like people come in and out of your life and they come in for a purpose. And sometimes when you're done with that purpose with each other, we don't have to break up. You know, we don't have to cause an argument. It's just that we've done that soul contract or whatever. And now we can part ways and thank each other for the lessons we learned or the time that we've spent. And some people evolve and if others don't, then we sort of grow separate from them. And then we're no longer connecting at the same level. It doesn't mean you're higher or better. It just means that they chose different turns in the road than you did. And right. this is their soul's journey. So nobody's really wrong. You know, I mean, if you really are honest, nobody's really wrong. They're just doing them the best that they can with what they have with their collective experiences. And there's Byron Katie, she's an amazing mindfulness coach. And she has this uh, stuff called the work where she asks for questions. So if somebody says something to you, and you take it in, and you have to ask yourself or with anything, the first question you ask yourself, is that true? 
true? And 99% of the time, the answer to that question is no. And then you ask yourself, well, how would I feel or who would I be without that thought? And 99% of the time, you would be amazingly free. And so she does this whole stuff where she teaches you how to, and, and I had to do some of that with my coaching back in the day. It's kind of like knocking down the walls, right? Because we create our most rigid walls. And with those questions, she's kind of asking you to take down the walls and see what's on the other side. Because if that didn't exist in front of you, what would be on the other side of it? Right. And a lot of times, once you start going, it's called the inquiry. Once you start doing the inquiry, you realize that that person has said something that provokes something in you that goes way back to your past. Mm -hmm. And you're really still angry at this person or that person, but this person touched on something that brought you all the way back to that. And so then you do what she calls the turnaround. And then you address that issue and realize that that was a part of you that needed to heal. And it's called the work. You do the work. And then you're free from that, you know. Wow. This is a daily practice, obviously. And we talked Mm -hmm. earlier about, you know, People want a quick fix, but the more this becomes familiar to you and becomes more integrated into your way of being and into your life, it just becomes your life. Like you don't even think about it anymore. It just becomes automatic. It's just part of your process and how you respond to life, how you take in information, how you execute things. And it's just a continuum. Like we're never, Mm. we're never really done until we're done. Right. Yeah, we're always expanding, but it sounds kind of like it kind of frees up the way that you think because it's giving you options. There's there's two options here. You can continue to keep that wall up or you can bring it down and just kind of flow a little more fluidly with life and also understand your place in the grand scheme of things. Yes. You know, because I, I think a lot of us continue to have this sense, um, depending on what the situation is. So, you know, I'm not definitely not excluding myself from it, depending on the situation situation that something revolves around us. And I can't say how many times I have come across a situation where I'm completely stressing out because this has to get done. Nobody else could do this. This is like, like my obligation, whatever this task is, is so monumental that I've got to get it done. And then I'm stressing out. And at some point, some voice, the voice of the universe comes in and goes, and if he didn't finish it, what would happen? What is the worst case scenario? (laughs) You know, (laughs) and, and I realized I'm stressing out for nothing. When I'm 90 years old and on my deathbed, this is not even going to be a thought in my mind. Exactly. Exactly. Does it matter? (laughs) No. Like, so why am I giving it so much importance? You know, what's the worst that could happen? Nothing. It doesn't get done. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That happens so much. And I think we're so rigid. We, We get into this really rigid way of thinking rather than going, what are all the possibilities? that can make it really good for everybody. Well, yeah, there is a solution and it's called flexibility, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and then it becomes a more joyful experience and actually it ends up working out to be the better choice than trying to cram everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves that permission 
to change things, you know, like you're allowed to make up your mind and then you're allowed to unmake up your mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we need to just give ourselves permission to do that. Um, first of all, I should ask you, do you have anything else that you want to add? Did we gloss over anything? Did we miss anything? I think that we, you know, we touched on quite a bit. I mean, we've given people a lot to think about, to chew on. I think we covered quite a lot. We pretty much covered most of it, huh? Yeah. You know, I felt so light and having a better perspective of the world after we talked last time. It just, it was, yeah, it was just a really good feeling. And, you know, this sort of conversation and subject matter really does start your brain thinking. It's almost like um, putting a little bit of oil on those rusted gears or the gears that are sticking a little bit to open up pathways, I guess, to spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. So you start thinking about that a little bit more because the world that we live in is so focused on technology and time constraints and obligations and, you know, just really we're task quarters. And until we start feeling the pressure of those tasks and, you know, sometimes get squashed under them, and there's no room for us to connect with our spirituality when we're doing that. And so these are just such great conversations to have to remind you, hey, there's this whole other part of you that you're neglecting and you need to get back in contact with. Yes, it's you need to take that step away from this chaos. I call it the urban jungle and just spirituality is just about realizing that you are a divine being and that the divine whatever you resonate with is flowing through you and is in you it is part of you and you are in the image of that and I think we forget that and that when we don't allow that to express itself through us we are denying it and I don't want to live like that like then why am I here? Like, what's that purpose? This is my journey. I want it to be full. Everybody wants to feel that they've mattered at the end of the day, that they've made a contribution, right. that they were important, whether it's within your family or, or whatever. And your gestures don't have to be grand. But if you can change one life, then you've done a blessed thing. If you've changed multiple lives, then that's even greater. But my husband and I have this philosophy and he actually taught it to me. It's like make two people happy every day and you're doing good karma. So that could mean opening mm. the door for somebody. That could mean just smiling to somebody. That could mean just saying good morning to somebody. Like lift your head up, look out and just do two things to make somebody happy every day and you'll feel fulfilled. Yeah. I like that. My friend Mike, he tries to do something every day. And one of his things that he does is always make sure that the shopping cart is back for the next person uh, who's going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good karma. That That's definitely doing something good for somebody. Um, how can people connect with you? 
Um, they can go to my website, which is Makara Yoga Shala. So it's M-A-K-A-R-A Yoga, Y-O-G-A Shala, S-H-A-L-A dot com. That's just my website. It just talks about my husband and I and who we are and testimonials and so on. You can email me at Kwan, K-U-A, N as in Nancy, M as in Mary Davis, D-A-V-I-S, at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook under my name, Maureen Deering Davis, or on Instagram. But if you go to my website, you can click on to all of my links there and find me there, LinkedIn, all those places. But that probably the best way is you can read up about us and then you can reach me by email and just identify your yourself and that'd be the quickest way. Awesome. Awesome. And finally, if you had one thing to share with the world, you've shared many things, uh, really wonderful things right now. But if you had one specific thing to share with the world, what would it be? Be yourself because everyone else is taken. <laughs> That's so true, isn't it? I, it seems like such a simple statement, but it's really profound. Yeah, just be yourself. Being you is good enough. It's actually brilliant. So, you know, just remember that it's through our light that we give others permission to share their light. And don't be afraid of your power. Use it to accomplish good. Live from your heart. And ask yourself when you're stuck in a situation, one, you can always manage to find a way out. Two, I do inventory daily about letting go of attachment and then and just making sure that if this were my last week on the earth, like would I be making the choices I'm making and living the way I'm living, you know, right now? Or what do I need to change it? I have days where I'm like, how many more sunsets do I have? I don't want to mm -hmm. take anything for granted. How many more beautiful cups of coffee in the morning? Especially when you get to be a certain age, it's like things you start to take inventory of that. Right. And am I living in harmony with my soul's purpose? I know I'm doing my soul's work. I'm sure of that. But am I aligned with where I'm supposed to be? And I trust, you know, I trust the universe. I trust that I'm being divinely guided. And when I do that, I always stay in the flow. And it makes things a little bit easier because we don't have to have the answers for everything. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, sometimes not having the answer is a good thing. So, yeah. Yeah, not knowing, not knowing how many more sunsets you have. So, you know, not having that answer gives you a lot of answers if you pose the right questions. Right, right. Yeah, just trying to stay in peace and joy. And it's a daily practice. <laughs> And it's, there's no, there's no, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I'm trying not to be perfect in it. It's just, I mess up all the time, but just being gentle with myself when I do, and I'm just human and I'm just trying to have the best peaceful experience that I can have. And knowing that I'm taking care of things I need to take care of and being good to the people I love and the people that I teach and care about and just doing my best mm -hmm. to whatever that is that day. Yeah. I like that being gentle with yourself because I think it just yeah. comes back to the more gentle you are with yourself, the more gentle you're going to be with others. So that is absolutely, absolutely. Where are you teaching classes at right now? Um, so I'm teaching at the Torrance Cultural Arts Center. Classes are full right now for the fall. 
And then I teach at the Manhattan Beach Jocelyn Center. But you can find out that information on my website. People can reach out to me if they want to get more information about signing up for the winter session, which will be coming up. I can put them on my newsletter and then oh, great. they'll get the link. Yeah. And the information when it comes ready to register and so on. There's so much great information packed into this episode. And I am so grateful to Maureen for sharing so much of her knowledge. We covered a lot, breathing, mindfulness, meditation, injury recovery, and the excellent advice of just being yourself, being you. Let your light shine and practice kindness to yourself and to others. Be sure to check the show notes for links to Maureen's website and other things that we talked about. And send me your questions and suggestions to help me design the episodes that most interest you. Please take a second to rate this episode. As usual, your rating does move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, self-discovery, peace, elegance, and beauty.